You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 2nd, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Oh, my gosh. Something happened to me today that has never happened to me before in my life. Can I tell you? No. Can I I have just 20 seconds to explain? What was her name? Well, (laughs) no. Here's what happened. I'm leaving my, my place of work today. I go out to my car and... On top of my car, square in the center of the hood of my car, is a half-eaten donut that looks like it was either thrown or dropped onto the hood of my car. Crumbs are everywhere. It looks like it snowed crumbs all over my car. But there it was, a half-eaten donut sitting on the top dead center of the hood of my car. This has never happened to me before, first of all. And second of all, I'm thinking, why did this happen? How did this happen? I I, I stood there puzzled literally for five minutes trying to figure it out. And I think, I think I came up with a solution. And Steve, you'll you'll tell me if, if, if this is plausible, at least. I think a bird probably got a hold of a donut or something. And for some reason, it dropped it midair. And, and, and just hit smack dab in the center of the hood of my car. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think a seagull would, would, would do that. Mm-hmm. Could they pick Te- that up? We have Teenagers. lots of seagulls in the area, and then they yeah. certainly hang out at parking lots of fast food joints and eat, and eat off the humans. Absolutely. Would you? Th- would that be one of the first things that comes to your mind if you saw a half-eaten donut in the center of the hood of your car? Uh, I mean, the first thing I would think of would be divine intervention. I mean, I think that's okay. That's, let's cut to the chase. The holy donut. The obviously. holy donut. It is the holy donut. <laughs> the holy donut of Antioch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, aliens, number two aliens. Teenagers, come on. Yeah, teenagers would be my first. <laughs> I, I That also ran through my head, Rebecca. I'm like, what yeah. What 15-year-old you know, ran yeah. by and didn't like their donut and said, hey, let's just chuck this over here. So we have a very uh, entertaining interview coming up later in the show with James Marsters, better known as Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Woo-hoo. But before that, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about... Today whatever I want to talk about. Whatever, whatever yeah. you want to talk about. Go ahead. Yeah. I want to say happy birthday to Hattie Elizabeth Alexander, born April 5th, 1901. Hattie Alexander uh, was a pediatrician whose groundbreaking work on influenzal meningitis uh, cut the number of infant deaths to a negligible amount. It used to be that if if an infant got influenzal meningitis, then they were as good as dead. And after she devised a serum against it, she cut the mortality down to something like 20%. And this was before the advent of antibiotics. Once antibiotics came on the scene, she switched things up and she learned everything there was to know about antibiotics. And then she started working with them uh, to fight Bacterial meningitides is the way I'm going to pronounce that. Meningitides. Thank you. That sounds much better. Meningitides. So yeah, she was, uh, she was an awesome woman who did a lot of great things, but more than anything else, she saved countless lives by Mm -hmm. coming up with that serum. Yeah, she was uber cool. She also figured out the whole idea of bacterial resistance, you know, random mutations evolving resistance to antibiotics. She was, uh, yeah, pretty accomplished. On a, on a somewhat related note, I, I read a couple articles recently about a survey in the UK 
where they ask people to name a famous, just name a female scientist. Name a female scientist. Go, anybody. Uh, two-thirds couldn't do it. Whoa. Um, That's Most bad. of the people who actually named a female scientist. Marie Curie. Said Marie Curie. When they were asked to name a living female scientist, most still said Marie Curie. And, <laughs> and Or they named a dude. Yeah. Named Chris or Leslie. (laughs) No, a specific dude. Yeah, 12% named Isambard Kingdon Brunel, a 19th century mechanical and civil engineer and a guy. That's pretty embarrassing. It it is. It is uh, interesting. All right. So occasionally we'll mention female scientists on the show. Occasionally. 13%. All right. (laughs) Let's go on to some news items. I'm going to beat that dead horse. I'm just going to do it. I know. Uh, Jay, you're going to tell us about how many people believe in medical conspiracies. I am. Yeah, there was a recent survey authored by Eric Oliver and Thomas Wood. This was recently published in JAMA Internal Medicine. And unlike other surveys where people are typically asked to predict silly things like who's going to get kicked off American Idol, this one ooh, is... Ooh, in- ooh. <laughs> you, Steve, I do know you have an opinion on. <laughs> this one is interestingly about the belief in in medically related conspiracy theories in the United States. 1,351 adults were asked the following six questions. Number one, the Food and Drug Administration is deliberately preventing the public from getting natural cures for cancer and other diseases because of pressure from drug companies. 37% of the people asked agree, 32% disagree. Question number two, health officials know that cell phones cause cancer but are doing nothing to stop it because large corporations won't let them. 20% agree, 40% disagree. The CIA deliberately infected large numbers of African Americans with HIV under the guise of a hepatitis inoculation program. 12% found that to be true, 51% disagreed. Number four, the global dissemination of genetically modified foods by Monsanto Inc. is part of a secret program called Agenda 21 launched by the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations to shrink the world's population. 12% agree, 42% disagree. Number five, doctors and the government still want to vaccinate children even though they know these vaccines cause autism and other psychological disorders. 20% agree, 44% disagree. And finally, number six, public water fluoridation is really just a secret way for chemical companies to dump the dangerous byproducts of phosphate mines into the environment. Mm. 12% agree, 46% disagree. So averaging out the results, Oliver and Wood found that 49% of Americans agreed with at least one conspiracy, and 18% agreed with three or more. So I'm curious, guys, do any of you believe in any conspiracy theories, not the ones that I just mentioned, but I'm just curious about if you have any conspiracy theory you think is plausible or, or even possible? It depends on the size. I mean, there are small conspiracies. I mean, I believe that the tobacco industry was involved in a conspiracy to hide scientific evidence showing the the health risks of of smoking, but eventually these things come out. Then you know you have one company in a boardroom with three executives, you know, agreeing to lie about something. That's a conspiracy. But uh, grand conspiracies, you know, a shadow government, world altering, huge conspiracies. I don't no, not even. I don't think there's anything even coming close to that. Yeah, well, we've talked about that before, and just think of the number of people, you know, on the grand scale of these huge conspiracy theories that would have to, you know, all be in unison and, you know, not say a word to anybody. It just, it just won't happen. People, people don't work that way. What about you, Jay? Um, I, I thought about it, 
uh, before actually trying to look some stuff on the web just to try to pull it out of my head, I actually came up with the same one you did. I thought about the tobacco industry and and the uh, and that's just a money a money uh, motivated conspiracy, in my opinion. But I couldn't really think of any anything that I thought like you said. Gra- definitely no grand conspiracies. Um, certainly tons of smaller ones. I'm sure exist. So okay, so check this out, guys. So out of the questions that I just stated. Which ones do you guys think were the most well-known to the people in the study? The autism one, I think, was probably well-known. Vaccines. Yeah, the, the doctors and the government still want to vaccinate children, even though they know these vaccines cause autism. Uh, that one, um, 69% of the people had heard of that. Uh, uh, now, check this out. The Food and Drug Administration is deliberately preventing the public from getting natural cures for cancer. That one had 63% of the people that... Uh, that were asked already heard of it. And the only other one that, that I thought had a high enough number to mention was that health officials know that cell phones cause cancer. And that one, 57% had heard about that conspiracy theory before. I'm not saying the others were, were definitely all heard of by a certain number, but the numbers were very low. So with the results, the authors were able to see a correlation with the aforementioned conspiracies and the other behaviors related to like their medical decisions in health. So what they found was that the people that um, were inclined to believe in the conspiracy theories were also more likely to use alternative medicine and less likely to use modern medicine. So as an example, along with alternative medicine, conspiracy believers were more likely to use herbal supplements and eat organic food and buy from local farms. They were, however, less likely to be vaccinated, use sunscreen, have regular physicals, and visit the dentist. Mm-hmm. The freaking dentist. Oh, God. Gee. Don't don't not visit the dentist, okay? Jesus shell for big floss. <laughs> big, floor, <laughs> big, big fluoride. Big, floss. big fluoride. I, I have been consistently flossing for the vast majority of my life. But not big oil pulling. No. No, no I'm... Yeah. I, I'm a, I believe in the oil pulling conspiracy. So, <laughs> so there you have it. It turns out I was actually a little surprised. There is a lot more belief in these bigger conspiracy theories than I thought. Actually, quite a bit more than I thought. I didn't think the numbers were going to be averaging that high. I would have. I would have guessed higher, to be honest with you. But I'm, I'm biased because I deal with this every day. So you always think that it's more prevalent, the thing you deal with every day. Oh, gosh, Steve, I can imagine what people say coming through your office, you know, that they just want to tell you their little story or what their little belief system is. on. on it's not bad. Got to remember that people who are coming to see me are self-selective for at least trusting, you know, the mainstream medical model. The people, the, These people are not coming to see me, right? The people who believe in three and more conspiracy theories, probably not showing not up my three, office. Not three, yeah. Yeah. Also, I thought it was so interesting how few... Like less than 50% pretty much across the board would felt comfortable enough to disagree with the conspiracy. You know, like 40% of people didn't know if the government was hiding evidence of that cell phones cause cancer. Oh, right. Yeah, there's another, you're right. There's a whole different set of numbers there where people didn't say yes or no. They just didn't know. And the idea that of them not saying no is strange. The other thing we talk about on the show, and we don't really have a definitive answer for this, is people believe in conspiracies. Is it? cultural is it because you know of other beliefs that they have or is there a conspiracy mentality is there a conspiracy mindset or do their brains work differently than people who don't believe in multiple conspiracies and you know we do tend to see you know we were seeing this in this survey you know that 18 percent of people agreed with three or more conspiracies and, and certainly, I have a lot of personal interaction with people who believe the full gamut of conspiracy theories. It seems to be like a suite of beliefs that all go together. Yeah, so the conclusion here was that there is a 
quite a significant belief in conspiracy theories, and, and there's a lot of people that believe in multiple conspiracy theories. All right. Thanks, Jay. Let's move on. Actually, I'm going to talk a little bit about autism, which is related to one of those conspiracy theories. One of the big scientific questions regarding autism, which is a neurological disorder characterized by decreased social ability, the ability to interact with other people in the social context, you know, uh, children or people with autism don't make as much eye contact, etc. One question is, when does it, when does it begin? It's often not recognized until children are 12 months old, even two years old, you know, maybe even older, three, before the parents notice that their child, you know, is having uh, personality features or, or symptoms that, that, that motivates them to bring the child to the doctor. There have been over the last four or five years, a number of studies where they've looked for very subtle signs, clinical signs now of autism in children even younger. And Several studies now all seems, seem to be clustering around six months old as the earliest point in time where you can clinically pick up signs of autism. So if you like videotape infants and look at their behaviors and how often they make eye contact, etc., and then follow them over years, you can actually pick out the children who will be ultimately diagnosed with autism as early as six months. So that tells us that whatever's causing autism has to be already going on in the brain by that time. And it probably didn't start right at six months, you know, because kids are, they're rapidly developing as infants and they're neuro, neurologically, they're rapidly developing. So whatever is leading to these really subtle behaviors probably has roots farther back in development. But again, we're not sure how far back that goes. Now, Independent of this, there's, you know, multiple lines of evidence indicating that autism, which is really a set of disorders, not one very specific disorder, but that it's pretty dominantly genetic. You know, it's been associated with many specific gene mutations or gene variants. And a lot of those genes, not by coincidence, that are genes for proteins that are involved in brain development. Oh. Which makes sense, you know, right? So these are genes that involve how the brain develops, and those are the genes that are associated with, with autism. Well, now we have yet another line of evidence coming into play here. There's a recent study published where they looked at the structure of brains. They were doing autopsies, you know, basically they were dissecting the brains of children who happened to die for unrelated reasons, and they looked at uh, the brains of children who were diagnosed with autism and those who were not, you know, so the typical controls. And what they found were patches of disorganized neurons, especially in layers four and five of the prefrontal cortex. In other words, you know, so neurons should have a certain structure to how they connect with each other that is that is very consistent. When you look under at the brain under a microscope, you see the you know the, the structure of connections that neurons are supposed to have, but in the brains of children with autism, there were these patches of neurons that were not organized the way they're supposed to be. They were disorganized. And these were distributed throughout the cortex. When neurons migrate to where they're supposed to go in the third trimester of pregnancy. So you know, these disorganized neurons probably did not arise at six months of age. They, they resulted from processes occurring in the womb. Therefore, whatever is causing autism must also be occurring in the womb as well. Oof. So essentially, this pushes back the evidence 
for the neurological onset of autism back into the womb, you know, before birth. How conclusive is that, Steve? I mean, is yeah, that fairly solid? Yeah, so that's always a good question to ask. It's one study. One study is never definitive or conclusive. It needs to be independently replicated before we say, yep, we can now hang our hat on this. But the results were fairly robust. So you have one well-conducted study with a pretty clear outcome, you know, fairly, fairly robust outcome. And the, 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 the outcome measure also was fairly objective, right? Not talking right. about like pain or something. Talk about you know the structure of neurons. Talk about but, talk about a final nail in the coffin. I mean, if they replicate that and it's generally accepted across the board that this is what's happening. It's in there's evidence in the womb of this. Of yeah. the, you know, that oh my god, that would you know I know people will never change their mind no matter what, but I would think that would uh, so what sway do you think a lot of people? So you're talking obviously about the anti-vaxxers who are still trying to link autism to vaccines. And of course, if autism starts in the womb, then any vaccines that children get can't be, can't be the cause. Well, then the mother's yeah. vaccine the mother, that she received when she was, yeah. right. There's always an out. There's always an out. Exactly. But it's still vaccine. it's still powerful. Yeah. And how back? How far back can you go? Yeah. Exactly. To the mother's mother, and the well, as long as there's been vaccinations. So yeah. So there's, there's just you're right. There's just no way around that. You know, they're going to just say they'll they'll either just they'll dismiss the evidence because they don't like it. Like they. I've read, you know, anti-vaccination articles and whatnot that essentially just dismiss the genetic evidence out of hand with very superficial statements. Oh, scientists are obsessed with genetics. That's it. Dismiss all the genetic evidence. You know, a a little bit of optimism, though. If scientists can prove conclusively that this is something that is happening in the womb, then at the very least, we can hope that this would help put an end to mainstream media playing up both sides is equally correct. Mm-hmm. I think the more evidence we have on our side, the better our case for that gets. And then we start to better marginalize the anti-vaccine yeah. voices. Yeah, exactly. I agree, Rebecca. You, you can marginalize these beliefs and these movements, but you can't make them go away because the dedicated core are yeah. immune to evidence and logic. So, but you're right. It, it does help us marginalize. So let's push it out way out to the fringe. Yeah. That's the best we could do. All right. Interesting. I mean, autism is a fascinating neurological disorder. It's unfortunate that it's always now clouded by this fake question about vaccines. It's not, it's just, it's a complete diversion. But, you know, we have to keep making the point that, you know, the scientific evidence is just not consistent or compatible even with this notion that vaccines are any significant cause. All right, Bob, you're going to tell us about artificial yeast. Yes. So it looks like we have yet another advance in the field that I think in the future will dramatically affect our lives, synthetic biology. Scientists have synthesized the most extensively modified chromosome ever and integrated it into a yeast cell, which has been behaving normally. So dramatic changes, and yet the, the, the yeast seems to be pretty much uh, just normal, just normal yeast. And uh, th- this advance came from inter- uh, an international team of scientists, as always, from institutions like NYU's Langone's Medical Center's Institute for System Genetics and Johns Hopkins. You know, yeah, yeah they, are, they are not creating genomes or chromosomes from scratch. Um, many people think that that's a prerequisite before you could even call anything artificial life. The original uh, genes and chromosomes—they are still the template that they're basing these changes on, and the, and it's just, it's fundamentally pretty much the same chromosome. 
Um, so it's, it, it's not dramatic, but they're not making minor updates either. And so I think at some point you've crossed a line. And Steve, you mentioned this in, in your blog post about this. You, you, you've crossed a line at some point where, where you can legitimately call it artificial life. And, but that's a judgment call. And if you think we're not quite there yet, then, then I, I can respect that. But, uh, but it's, it's legitimate, I think, to, to, you know, put this under the umbrella of, of artificial life or synthetic biology. So, uh, similar genomic tinkering, of course, has been done in the past. You, we've talked about Craig Venter on the show. Uh, he, in 2010, he created the first modified bacterial genome. Uh, but there's a lot of differences this time around. For example, this time uh, we used yeast instead of bacteria. And uh, this is an important distinction, of course, because uh, yeast is eukaryotic. Bacteria is is different. They their DNA is pretty much free floating um, in the in the cell, whereas uh, there's a nucleus for for eukary- eukaryotic cells uh, like yeast, like people as well. Um, the specific strain that they used is important. It's called uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That strain is important because it's essentially the workhorse organism. Uh, of today's biomanufacturing and biotechnology, incredibly important. We use it to make bread, wine, vaccines, biofuels, um, specialty chemicals, things like that. So being able to tweak this type of, uh, of organism specifically then, I, it could obviously offer some tremendous advantages, even if they don't branch away from those staples like bread, wine, and vaccines, etc. cetera. Uh, still, the, there's tremendous opportunity there. Now, also the types, the types of changes to the chromosome are also different this time around. Uh, now, yeast has 16 chromosomes. Uh, they've updated just one of them. You got to start somewhere. So they removed about 50,000 base pairs from this chromosome. Pretty dramatic. Uh, when they were done, they, they ended up with about 274,000 base pairs when originally it had o- almost 317,000. So, so where did they go and, you know, what did they do? Essentially, they did a, a pretty much a major house cleaning of the DNA. And so this is primarily the junk DNA, which is uh, supposed to have no function. Uh, essentially, it's leftover code, you know, that was taken over by other genes or maybe some of it's uh, just old code from viruses that have just been hanging out doing nothing for, for eons and eons. It's an older code, but it checks out. (laughs) 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 Nice one. Uh, So uh, actually, actually, it doesn't check out. Uh, And I know there's, there's some controversy over this and, you know, what is and what isn't actually junk DNA. You know, perhaps some junk DNA actually has some hidden significance that we're not aware of and that, that's fine and that, that's true. It's it's so frustrating, Bob, because just just today I'm reading a headline. It's like scientists find purpose for junk DNA, but Sure, some of non-coding DNA has regulatory functions. We get that. We're there. You know, that's been demonstrated. Right. But it's the vast minority. There's still huge swaths of actual junk. And it's not just an argument from ignorance. We don't know what it does, therefore it's junk. We also know that it's not conserved at all. It's under no selective pressure, which is a pretty strong argument for the case that it's doing nothing. And now... You whack out 50,000 base pairs and the yeast does just fine. That's pretty good evidence that it Exactly. That's, to me, that, that's the gold standard right there. I mean, you, you whack it out and if, and of course, you know, you need to observe it, make sure everything's kosher. Um, but once you do that, then you could be pretty much guaranteed that that stuff was just not important. So yeah, so that's what they did and, uh, and that's fine. But the other things they removed, uh, they're kind of related to junk DNA, like introns, which are stretches of DNA w- within a gene. That kind of interrupt uh, the usual coding sequence. Sequence. They are not actually. They're discarded when proteins are made. So they cut that out as well. 
Um, they, they knocked out extra copies of genes that are found elsewhere in the genome. They removed jumping genes, and which is, which is critically important for this because they, these genes can change position from generation to generation and cause mutation. So what they did was they knocked them out and they replaced them with customized sequences that basically act as a, as a scissors on demand. They, uh, could sever the DNA you know, wherever they put it and allow the DNA to move around. Uh, you know, when you add the hormone estradi- estradiol, uh, when you add that, you could, you could act, kind of activate that, that new function. That brings us to the, the third major advance, uh, about this work, uh, shuffling the genes around at will. Uh, they call it the scrambling technique. And this, uh, this new technique, uh, allows scientists to, in effect, you know, you could consider it directing the evolution of the organism uh, almost at will, shuffling the genes like a deck of cards uh, is a metaphor that they used. So this could result in a, in a more optimized chromosome, allowing the yeast to do to do or survive environments and do all sorts of novel things that that it can never have done previously. That's a, it's an amazing technique that I, I think can offer a tremendous ability to just quickly shuffle these genes around. And kind of see what you get. And, you know, if you're looking for particular abilities, you know, keep shuffling until you, uh, to, till you get what you want. I mean, it's just really, uh, could be a very powerful technique. Always the optimist, Bob. <laughs> Five to ten years. Five to ten years. <laughs> All right. Powered by batteries. One more news item, Rebecca. You're going to tell us why Republicans uh, are against transparency, apparently. Well, sort of. not all Republicans. In fact, some Republicans, or at least one, has been very vocal in being for transparency. But yeah, this is something that I saw in the Daily Beast originally. Lawrence Lessig wrote a great article about it. Basically, what is happening right now is, uh, you know, we, we've talked about transparency in the past on this show and how it can be kind of a, a red flag that you might look for when you're looking at scientific studies and you're trying to work out what is valid and what might need to be looked at more skeptically. It's not something that would immediately debunk a study. It wouldn't immediately discredit it, but it is something that would say, hey, there might be a slight problem here that you should look more closely at. So financial conflicts of interest are normally something that you have to declare when you publish a scientific study. Like, uh, I was looking into the greatest paper towel of all time. The study is sponsored by Bounty, Bounty One. You know, that, that's something that might tip you off. Like, oh, this is something that we should, uh, we should look into to make sure that it's scientifically rigorous. Uh, it's a standard thing. It's not a standard thing in government, though, when government uh, in the U.S., when the U.S. government is looking at scientific studies in order to make a decision. So right now, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, is considering a rule change that would apply stricter standards to the amount of silica that can be found in the workplace. Silica is a thing that when you drill into minerals, silica can be released as particles that you might inhale, and it's known to cause cancer and other problems. So because of this, of course, they are looking at the science. David Michaels heads up OSHA, and he requested of the corporations that are against this rule change, corporations like Halliburton or the American Petroleum Institute, they are submitting scientific studies that they believe 
would support their viewpoint that these rules do not need to be stricter, that employees are perfectly safe as is. Michaels has requested that when they submit scientific studies, they simply disclose any financial conflicts of interest that might exist. Like, for instance, if they themselves sponsored whatever study they're submitting. Right. It's not like they're rejecting it. They're just asking him to make that disclaimer. Correct. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty reasonable request. And it's not even a hard and fast rule. It was literally just a request. But it was enough to apparently frighten 16 senators who drafted a letter to Michaels uh, objecting to several of the things he asked for in this case. Uh, but particularly at the end, they say that they are uncomfortable with the idea of a company having to disclose a the um, their financial conflict of interest in a study. They're scared that the uh, by disclosing the financial conflict of interest, it might actually bias OSHA against the corporations. So by declaring a bias, OSHA might be biased against them, if that makes sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense, by the way. It's uh, It's pretty ridiculous and kind of offensive. But what makes it even more offensive is that it turns out in the 120 days before that letter was drafted, the 16 senators who signed the letter have received more than $150,000 from the very groups that are arguing against the rule change. So in other words, those senators had a financial conflict of interest that they failed to disclose when arguing against disclosure of conflicts of interest. Ta-da! Isn't it so, wonderful how lobbyists work <laughs> and uh, that whole system? It's a wonderful, wonderful system. Yeah, it's not exactly like the the more cynical of you uh, will think, you know, it's not very surprising that our senators, first of all, come so cheap, $150,000, but yeah, that they are in, in the pocket of big business. But what was surprising to me when reading about this was that it's not already common practice for the U.S. government to insist that corporations declare conflicts of interest when submitting scientific studies when the government is about to make a decision. Personally, I think that it shouldn't just be a request that one administration makes in one case. I think that this should be a standard thing that everybody should do, like all aspects of government when they're making a decision based on scientific evidence, they should understand the conflicts of interest that are behind the scientific studies because we have a long history of corporations promoting pseudoscience in an attempt to get their way. Steve mm -hmm. mentioned one earlier, the tobacco industry, right. for a very long time promoted studies that seemed to show that there was absolutely nothing to be afraid of in their products. And time has shown that to be completely ridiculous. One corporation that is a part of this silica uh, rule change that I already mentioned, the uh, petroleum American Petroleum Institute, previously argued that lead in the environment was perfectly safe and that all medical studies to date showed so. It was a complete lie that ignored 2,000 years of knowledge about lead. Um, so 
these corporations aren't new to this game. They've done this before. And this request is really just like the first small step towards making corporations more accountable for the science that they're submitting and helping government officials separate truth from fiction when making really important decisions like this decision impacts the lives of workers who work regularly with materials like silica so uh if check out the article and if you live in one of the states where uh these senators are I, i mean if if i lived in one of those states you can be sure that i would be calling my senator and asking them why they're specifically working for these corporations that donated to them as opposed to working for more scientific transparency in their work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in this context, to this degree, it's hard to argue against just, as you say, transparency, just disclose any conflicts of interest. It's not, it's not a big deal. Yeah, it's so obvious and so basic to me that it's ridiculous that anybody could think that it was a moral thing to argue against. Uh, one last point with this. Uh, Rebecca does have no conflicts of interest to declare in discussing this. <laughs> well, I item. do own a silica mining corporation. Ah, but okay. Besides that. Thanks for discussing that. <laughs> no All right. Problem. Evan, we're going to move. You're, you're a, a week behind on Who's That Noisy? You got to get us caught up. We got a little catch up to do from a couple weeks ago. Who's That Noisy? Let me play for you uh, from the last time we did this fun game. Hang on. Here we go. And uh, and also you have to keep in mind that more that Jimmy Carter saw a UFO, and also that more people in this country uh, uh, have seen UFOs, and I think approve of George Bush's presidency. Definitely an advantage to our American listening audience uh, that particular voice, and even more so to people from the uh, great state of Ohio because that was Dennis Kucinich. Former U.S. representative, he served from 1997 to 2013, and he was also a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States, both in 2004 and in 2008. And in fact, that a little clip was taken from one of the um, primary debates of 2007, in which, you know, obviously it was brought up that, well, he's uh, he's had a little run in with UFOs uh, in his past. For a little more information on that, we have to uh, bring in Shirley MacLaine. She also believes in lots of different pseudosciences and other things. And here's what she wrote in her book pertaining to Representative Kucinich. He had a close sighting over my home in Graham, Washington, when I lived there. Dennis found his encounter extremely moving. The smell of roses drew him out to my balcony, where, when he looked up, he saw a gigantic triangular craft, silent and observing him. It hovered soundless for ten minutes or so and sped away with a speed he couldn't comprehend. He said he felt a connection in his heart and heard directions in his mind. Well, there you go. I mean, he felt it in his heart, Evan. <laughs> I, and, and uh, you know, QED. heard directions in his mind. They were clearly telepathically communicating. That's wonderful, him. actually. I I remember this all coming up back when he was running for president, but I didn't realize that he had that sighting on Shirley MacLaine's balcony. <laughs> like, that makes yeah. the whole thing... <laughs> A thousand times funnier. Well, it makes it significant as well. (laughs) Well, birds of a feather, you know. So, plenty of correct guesses for this one. But, as I say every week, there can be only one. And Thomas McKinney, your name was drawn. You are the winner for this one. Congratulations. You go into the main drawing at the end of the year. And if we choose your name, Thomas, you're going to join us for Science or Fiction in early 2000. 
15. And what do you got for this week? Take a listen and uh, let's see if you remember this one. Let's go. What is Event Horizon? That's it. <laughs> that's it. That That's all you get. Wow. And <laughs> so, folks, if you know the answer, you want to just give it your best guess, please send us an email. We have a special email set up for Who's That Noisy Guesses? WTN at theskepticsguide.org. We look forward to reading your replies, and good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Fantastic. All right, we're going to do uh, a name that logical fallacy this week. This is a question that comes from Ryan McNamara from Defiance, Missouri. Love it. Yep, Ryan asks, what would you call the tendency to inappropriately lump together ideas according to theme or association? For instance, I frequently find it nearly impossible to take a conservative or liberal position on a topic without the other person arguing against related views I do not share. So in the lead-up to the Iraq War, taking the position that Saddam didn't have WMDs meant people would respond with, yeah, but the war will pay for itself, or perhaps some nonsense about terrorism. Similarly, if I argue minimum wages laws reduce income over the long term, I find I might have to convince the person that I don't think the free market solves everything, uh, that there should be no welfare, etc. Yeah, I agree, Ryan. I find this incredibly frustrating in that people tend to assume that you have a suite or package of opinions because you express one opinion that they normally associate with the package. I often find this in skeptical, you were talking mainly about political examples, but I also find this in skeptical contexts as well. So what logical fallacy do you think lies at the core of this? Guy? Is it false, an false analogy? I don't think they're making an analogy, though. It's not an analogy here. And you, it, well, all logical fallacies are non sequiturs, Evan, so well, you got to right. get more specific. Uh, mm. Moving the goalposts, maybe? How about straw man, right? They're attributing to them uh, beliefs yeah. that they don't mm. have. Uh, it, it's a t I think it's a special type of straw man where it's, it's just you're assuming – uh, or it could also be a hasty generalization, you know, where you're saying, well, you know, you believe this, therefore you're a liberal, and all liberals believe these suite of things, you know, for example. You think that covers that? I mean, it's it's an interesting one in terms of exactly what the logical fallacy is. It's interesting that, that Ryan, you know, picked up on something, Steve, that, you know, you've also felt and experienced over years. I've certainly yeah. – uh, come to know this, you know, many years, because we're, we're all, you know, not only um, skeptically active, but, you know, we, we follow politics and we're pretty opinionated on, on certain things. But I can't say that, Steve, you or I fall into any, you, you can't put us in a cast, uh, you know, saying we are this and we are that. It depends on the, it depends on the topic. It yeah. really depends on the topic. The other thing is, is there, is there a kernel of legitimacy here in that, do most people have like the suite of liberal ideas or the suite of conservative ideas? Is it a first, a, a reasonable first approximation to assume that somebody who expresses one conservative idea probably does have a lot of conservative ideas? I think you get yourself into trouble if you start with that kind of assumption because yeah. you know you, you you'll you might be right some of the time. Well, it's but a stereotype. You're, you're, right, it's a stereotype. You're gonna get it wrong a lot of times. So what, yeah. what's what's the logical fallacy behind? Behind stereotypes. This is why I brought up moving the goalposts because it's. I, I don't know if most people tend to pick a suite of beliefs. I'm sure that there are many studies that show one way or the other, which it is. Um, but it doesn't really matter because when you're in a discussion about a particular topic, if you are 
or if your opponent is then moving the discussion to something else entirely, then, or even a related issue, like it's important to keep uh, an argument like that focused. And if you're moving to something else, then, you know, so when you, when you say like that it's a straw man because they're arguing against something that the person, an opinion that the person doesn't actually hold, I don't think that's necessarily a perfect description because they might be arguing against an opinion that the person actually does hold. It's just that it's not relevant to the situation. Yeah, I can see that. See what I'm saying? Well, sometimes it's relevant, sometimes it's not relevant. I also find that this is used to make the reductio ad absurdum. You know, like if I say something uh, supportive of something Barack Obama did, I've had people say, well, you agree with everything he's ever done? Well, oh well, well, no, that's, you know, <laughs> I didn't say that. I just think in this one particular instance, I think he has a point, you know, whatever. I, I do think this is a core sort of behavior that that a lot of other logical fallacies attach themselves to. But it's, it is sort of like treating somebody as a category rather than trying to understand their individual opinions. And again, bringing it back to the skeptical things, I get emails from people who are in the comments to my blog, for example, you know, where they're arguing against uh, a particular position that I have about vaccines or, or acupuncture or whatever. And they make all kinds of assumptions about what I believe. You know, they just, just they, they have this cardboard caricature of the science villain or whatever the hell it is in their head, you know, and they make all these ridiculous assumptions about what my position is. It's all, it's all a straw man, but to them, it's this category. They're arguing against a category, not person. I think the lesson is don't make assumptions about what other people are saying. Actually listen to them and try to understand their position. Don't mm-hmm. treat them like a category or a label. Let me tell you about the crazy things I believe. Yeah, let me tell you. How- and then you can draw your <laughs> Exactly. Argue against my actual crazy positions, not the yeah. fake ones you have. <laughs> not the ones you are projecting onto. Right. Oh. Exactly. It's a lot of it's projection. Exactly, Evan. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. We've got to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors, GoToMeeting. So, guys, building a strong relationship with your team is key for any business. You need to meet and collaborate with coworkers and clients on a regular basis. I, I, I do that all the time. So to brainstorm, develop quality ideas and solutions, and just work better. But gathering everyone in the same room can be impossible sometimes. So that's why we use GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix, the powerfully simple way to meet in person, online, from anywhere, anytime. Yeah, we love GoToMeeting. We've used it to talk to our listeners, like the people who sponsor these shows. We had an awesome time talking with them and doing a live show for a bunch of listeners, and we're probably going to use it again in the future. Yep, and it's so easy. Thoughts easy. Sign up for <laughs> GoToMeeting from your computer or mobile device and launch your first meeting in seconds. You'll be able to share the same screen to collaborate on projects in real time and turn on your webcams to see each other face-to-face. Yep, you could start your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting today. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button and use the promo code SGU. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code SGU. That's right, guys. All right, let's get back to our show. We are joined now by James Marsters. James, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Hello, hello. Good to be here. James! <laughs> James is probably best known by the listeners of our podcast as, let me say, Captain John Hart 
from BBC's Torchwood, <laughs> right? Uh, mm-hmm. No. Only from that, but yeah. No. As much as I love Buffy, that is how I prefer to. From Buffy, a, a, a very heavily science-based television show. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he also made an appearance on one of my favorite television series, uh, Northern Exposure. Yes. In fact, I played yeah. two different roles on that show. Oh, wow. Uh, not a, people, a lot of people know that. I, I played a bellhop. That's how I got my SAG card. And later on, I played a very horrible priest who just sweated his way through his job and had no idea what to say to anybody. And All since right, we're guys. on science, I played Buzz Aldrin in oh, uh, Moonshot. Yes. Yep. Yeah, it was for the BBC and the Discovery Channel about the Apollo 11 moon landing. It's actually very much like the, uh, like the mission. Uh, the capsule is the same size, all the buttons are, are correct, and when the astronauts saw it, they said, wow, that looks like kind of like the mission. Did you get oh, to wow. meet Buzz Aldrin or any of them? No, I was afraid to meet Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's, he's going to punch, punch you, out, right? Yeah, no, he only punches out people who say stupid things to him. <laughs> Yeah, but how do you know what he thinks? No. Uh, <laughs> no I mean, he's, he's been a hero of mine since I was eating space sticks in sixth grade. So, no, I had a chance to go to Italy for a premiere of the film, and I declined just be out of nervousness. Oh, oh wow. my goodness. I have the same problem when I meet Leonard and Moy. I don't know what to say. I make an idiot out of myself. Oh, uh, yeah. James, James, can I say that you have a really bad fake American accent? <laughs> nice. Actually, yeah, I'm actually <laughs> English, but I am pretending to be American so I get credit for a good English accent. Oh God, James, do me a favor, please teach Jay just for a few seconds how to actually do a real English accent because he's so horrible. I'm happily horrible at it. Well, my theory behind <laughs> the English accent is you have to insert self-loathing into it. If, you know, if you don't hate yourself, it's not really. You know, it's like hello. You're like you're like Dick Van Dyke without the practice, basically. So you're going to oh. upper class, an upper class accent, of course. Yes, I mean self-loathing along with I'm better than you, really. <laughs> if you can get both of those things going on at the same time, you've got a good upper class. Yeah, I'll weave that in next time. I like that. There you go. <laughs> We've never actually, we haven't mentioned on the show yet that, of course, that James Marsters played Spike on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I just recently rewatched the entire series because I have two da- two young daughters who I am grooming to be uber geeks and working, <sighs> working wonderfully, by the way. And <laughs> Buffy was a huge part of that. Of course, Spike was their all-time favorite character. That's fabulous. You know, I grew up on Planet of the Apes. Yes. Uh, which yes. were good movies in the main, especially mm-hmm. the first two. But they were just depressing thematically. They say give up because they, the world will be taken over by apes, so don't even try. Uh, and I always am a little jealous of people who grew up on Buffy because it has the opposite message, which is don't give up. So good for you for showing them the show. No, yeah, it actually is. It's very good uh, heroic vibe throughout the yes. show. Yeah, I only, I only met one person that saw the show and didn't like it. It was uh, an older actor, one of the original Star Wars cast, who will rena- remain unnamed. Ooh, and okay. he didn't like this show. He said no woman that size could defend herself properly. And what? So it's stupid what? show. Did you hear yeah, Alex Guinness for saying that? I mean, really. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, I said, dude, I, I fight with the stunt doubles for Buffy all the time. And they're multiple black belts and they could kill both of us without breaking a sweat. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Yeah, but not to, <laughs> not to state the obvious, but Buffy, 
you know, had magical powers. Right? Well, right. that was the great thing about the show from a writing standpoint. We always felt sorry for the people on Star Trek who had to explain everything. And it took a lot of time to explain why this could happen, whereas we just came up with some gem. The gem of the North Throw just does it, blow on it, and then the plot continues. Well, there's a short hop from a magical gem to reversing the star thrusters or whatever i mean you gotta re- do the phase inverters in the heisenberg right. compensators yeah, yeah, phase yeah. <laughs> i i saw I would, as much as i love buffy talk i uh i actually do have a, a skeptical type of question i read something on imdb and i don't believe everything i read on imdb so help me out it said that your favorite book is extraordinary popular delusions in the madness of crowds. You know, I I would have said that that's an old entry, and I I would have to amend that now mm. with a very different book by Bernard Hayes. Uh, although that is a very good book, it basically says that there are what is it three things in life. This is going back to the popular delusions of crowd, um, um, the delusions of crowds. That there are three things that you cannot get over uh, in life, which is uh, death ignorance of the future and toil and if anyone is trying to tell you that you that they have some way of getting you over one of those humps they're selling snake oil and watch out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, oh, okay and also just great stories about how london would go insane like every 70 years right. someone would get the wrong grain with psilocybin in there and start wandering the streets and telling everybody that the world was about to end my favorite book today is A Purpose Created Universe by Bernard Hache, who's an astrophysicist. Uh, I think it's, he's out of University of Arizona. He argues, quite interestingly, for the universe being created by a uh, creative intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he points to, what is it, 34 things about the physics of the Big Bang, that if any one of them were different... Intelligent life couldn't form, like the relative strength of gravity to the other forces or the way that carbon is formed inside stars or the way the periodic table is made, <clears throat> stuff like that. So the anthropic principle. He's a, a pantheist, though, or a pandeist, right? He he doesn't believe in like a Christian God and intelligent design and such, but he believes in... Yeah, exactly. That's another reason why I like the book a lot, is he says that, the, that as he sees it mathematically, the chances that the, the universe was created by an intelligence are quite high, but the, the, the chances that that, ha- that intelligence bears any resemblance to any of the earthly religions is, quite, quite frankly, quite low. Right. And I thought that that was very – I could really understand that. I'm like, that makes yeah. sense to that that's interesting. We talk, we've talked about that. That's as Bob said. That's the anthropic principle. Basically, that the universe. It's very unlikely that the universe would have all of the properties necessary for intelligent life to arise. But obviously, you know, there are lots of approaches to that, uh, including the multi-universe. Uh, yes. And that, yeah, it's infinite number of universes, and the only ones in which people are around to ask questions about you know their existence are ones in which it's possible for them to exist. And you know, Stephen, this I'm glad that we're talking about this because I uh, I wanted to, to ask you about this because uh, in the book he says that since uh, since we cannot observe strings uh, of string theory, mm-hmm. uh, that observation has really been taken out of the equation in the main for string theory, and it's it's relegated to just chalk on a chalkboard, so to speak. And every time science does that and and isn't able to observe 
all sorts of mistakes can happen. And so he says you can you can choose to have faith in that, or you can have you can have faith in God. And he just decides. Look, I think I'll be happier if I choose God. I just thought it was interesting. It's uh, this is certainly one of the the currently unsolved mysteries of science is we don't know why the laws of nature are what they are. We don't know if they have to be what they are. If mm-hmm. there are more than one universe, are they are the laws the same in every universe? Or yeah. are they randomly shuffled every time? We have just we just have no idea at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, you're you're right about string theory in that it is largely theor- the realm of theoretical physics, but there are certainly physicists who would disagree with the notion that there's no way to to test it. There was just an observation about the background radiation that kind of buttresses the. String theory. Yeah. Am I wrong about that? No, that's correct. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, yeah, it mainly it supported the idea, you know, by detecting those gravitational waves, um, that the idea that inflation, the cosmic inflation, really happened. But yeah. the, the problem I have with the God answer, whatever, mm-hmm. however you conceptualize it, it, philosophically, is that it's just a, a way of giving up. Uh, we we just it's okay to say we just don't know. We don't have this is something to which we currently do not have the answer. And, you know, we're going to have to get a lot smarter and, and dig a lot deeper before we can even formulate the right questions, actually, to be honest with you. I agree. Uh, I, that's I cool. Think that, yeah, I think that humili- knowing that you are ignorant is the beginning of the first step toward wisdom, you know. Uh, I, I think that that's, what, that's what's so exciting about, about particle physics and astrophysics right now is we've made, some, we've made discoveries that really confuse us. Uh, dark energy and dark matter uh, and, and the behavior on the subatomic level is is uh, is confusing, and yeah. people are throwing up their hands. And I think that we're 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 admitting, my God, we don't really know uh, everything there is to know about this subject anymore. Yeah, the best the best scientific uh, answers, you know, raise other questions. You know, it's when you reach that dead end where you got to think, oh, where is, am I doing this right? Yeah, it's just delicious. I just <laughs> but there, there was there there someone was saying that inevitably, you know, somebody at the head of some one of the fields of science claims that we now know everything and people don't need to do any more papers on this subject. We right, find out right. how it works. Yep. And then inevitably it's all turned on its head and we find out, oh no, there's a whole nother layer here. So I'm wondering, James, do you have any plans or any interest in the future in doing like a science documentary or any like channeling your love of science and putting it together with your acting? That would be fabulous. You know, I, uh, I haven't made any plans. I mean, basically, I feel like a a science fan. Like, I might meet a fan who has seen me do what I do well. And they say, oh, my God, I love watching you work, you know, and I've, you've given me a lot of pleasure, and uh, and that's great. They don't really know how how to make a film or how to rehearse right. a play or anything. And um, I'm, I'm kind of like that with science and scientists. I... I I'm like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> Can that be true? Um, but I'm, I, I am seeped in my own ignorance about it. I'm very much of a layman. Um, so, you know, if I think it would be exciting for me to to narrate something, uh, I don't think that I would want to write it unless it's just really out front. Like this is a layman's understanding of what's going on right now. It doesn't necessarily have to be about you speaking from a place of authority, but you allowing 
others to sort of uh, have their scientific expertise featured, but using your prominence and your skills as an actor or as a producer, because you've you've produced things in the past too, uh, directed, I believe, right? You know, you you could you could maybe help bring those things to the forefront. I could pull a Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah. Right. Ooh, I think so. Yeah. You know, or... and, I, and make my uncle proud, Tom Barstow. He's a scientist. Oh, what He's does he a, do? Uh, physiology. Um, years ago, uh, he helped design um, the suit that fighter uh, jet fighter pilots wear to keep them from blacking out at high oh, G. Oh, awesome. So, uh, and he wow. travels around at the state. Uh, uh, he's, he, you know, he's known in the in, in in the community, and he does a lot of lecturing about physiology. He's a scientist. James, how do you how do you think humanity will end? Wow, uh, <laughs> I don't even have an answer for that one. Don't say vampire. I do. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) you've acted this out, you know, several times on Buffy. (laughs) So you should know, man. You're the apocalypse expert. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you should you should be able to handle this question. I I have to have hope that we're going to Star Trek it. You know, we're going to that we are going to overcome our moral failings and embrace a sensible, sustainable economic model and environmental mo- model uh i love star trek you know it's it's oh boy you, you go down on those planet you know the, the utopian world that they have is a low energy consumption high technology uh model and i think that's the one to go for you know like you go down on the planet and picard is in his vineyard you know it's just like <laughs> this is it that's what yeah. it should be um <laughs> all right so you're an optimist i like that i have to i have to, I have to embrace hope just because uh, psychologically doing anything else is is not healthy, I think, and and yet I do have a lot of moments where, uh, you know, I, I I remember thinking ten years ago we have got to fully embrace uh, green energy. Really good uh, article by um, Robert Kennedy Jr. to whoever was going to win the two thousand eight election, and he said that. We have to take away our energy supply and create an economic vacuum to fill with green energy. And people will argue against this, but he, he hearkened back to what happened to the South when slavery was taken away and said that that was more or less a free source of energy for, right. for production. And they just, it just got wiped out, which is a good thing, of course. Yeah. Um, but what happened was is that, that into, into the economic vacuum – that that created stepped industry and science and government and created uh, industrial revolution. And uh, a need was created. And um, if if he was arguing, we just, we need to make huge inroads in getting and just stop lighting things on fire for our energy needs. It's so caveman. It's it's really sad because I don't think the science community on average, really feels that way. Or, or in other words, we, we're the people saying, let's heavily fund all of these projects. Let's, you know, let's, let's have Manhattan level style projects where we, you know, bend the whole country's um, resources to developing, you know, one or more technologies that can be a, uh, a game changer. Yeah. And then we discovered shale, gas, and oil. And I throw up mm-hmm. my hands and said, you know what? <sighs> you know, like I, sometimes I lose hope. You know, yep. uh, but you're right. The only logical reaction to what's happening is that we have to have multiple Manhattan projects 
What was it? There was a there was a, the super grid that was going to be developed about being able to make a new electric grid where you could just shoot electricity coast to coast without any drag, without any loss of power in the oh superconductors. Is that it? Yeah. Um, yeah and the technologically, it seemed like we could do this. It would be a very large project, but at the point that you put it in, you could put solar fields out there. Uh, yeah. And and you know you because you have to add solar fields way away from the population centers, but who cares? Just collect it out in the desert, just send it wherever you want to, and it solves so many problems. Ooh, ooh, here's something. I've always wanted to ask <laughs> people this idea that I have. Can't help okay. you. Okay. <laughs> I have an idea that that will save the world. Here's the here's my idea. Tell me why I'm wrong. The problem with hydrogen production is, you know, technologically it's easy. You just put a lot of electricity into water and collect the hydrogen that comes off. But it takes more energy going into the vat of water than you get out in hydrogen on the other side. The problem with solar or wind is that you can collect it for free, but it's it's hard to transport that without this super grid. But if you combine them and just put hydrogen production on site with solar and wind, take all this free energy create hydrogen out in the desert, and then truck it to the city with hydrogen-fueled trucks, and it seems like you've solved the transportation problem and you've solved the problem of, of the inefficiency of creating hydrogen. Yeah, I mean, that, that idea is out there. There are multiple research projects where people are working on so-called artificial leafs, where it's essentially used some kind of technique that turns sunlight into hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, makes that they were the hydrogen essentially is not a source of energy because there's no free hydrogen on the earth, but it's a it's it could be a way of storing energy, which is what you're saying. And not only you could not only truck it, you could build hydrogen pipelines, pipelines that are actually rated to actually, you know, send hydrogen through them. So, but that would require building an infrastructure, and it's always the it's the initial investment that's always the limiting factor. Like, yeah, sure, we could build we could run our country entirely off of solar, but it's just going to cost billions of dollars okay. where we could build a hydrogen infrastructure and all this technology exists but um it's the short-term sort of pain that we'd have to pay like even you know robert f kennedy i'm not a big fan of rfk jr because he's an anti-vaccinationist but that aside mm, um, you know he's, he's correct in that if 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 uh, energy costs a lot of money then um we would there would be a huge incentive to develop you know, green energy but how much economic pain are we going to suffer in the meantime and who's going to sign off on that? You know, so. But that links right tricky. back to what James said, Steve. That it's the pain that makes people move. James, before we end, give give us a little spike. No, I don't do that anymore. You've got. <laughs> I've, I've moved on with my life, for God's sake. Bloody hell. So, James Marsters, aka Spike, thank you so much for joining us on the Skeptics Guide. It's really been a lot of fun. I've had a fabulous time. I like hanging out with people who are a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> And yet oh you gosh. liked this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel the same way yeah. you do. That's why I hang out with Steve. So, <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thanks James. James. Thanks, yeah. James. Thank you. Well, guys, let's take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. Now, for a limited time, The Great Courses is offering a very special deal to our listeners, Mysteries of Modern Physics Time by Sean Carroll. Uh, you can get this for 80% off. I've been listening to these lectures. They're they're really fantastic. I, I was just listening to the one where he talks about the calendar and how different cultures have tried to wrestle with trying to sort out the difference between 
you know, a day, a month, and a year. They don't all nicely break in, uh, divide into each other. So how do they deal with those different issues? It's very fascinating. Yeah. You know, we all love to learn and find find out the truth about the universe and the world we live in. So Great Courses is an awesome, easy way to do that in the comfort of your own home. And it's been going on for the past 20 years. They have more than 500 courses uh, on all types of subjects, science, math, history, art, music, so many different subjects. Yeah. You can listen to or watch the Great Courses with downloads and streaming DVDs, CDs, you know, at your own pace and with no pressure of exams. And Carol's course is amazing. This guy clearly knows his stuff. He, he talks about common misperceptions about time. He examines contrasting views and pioneering research in thermodynamics, relativity, quantum theory, cosmology in, in an incredibly engaging way. And he also delves into what happened possibly before the Big Bang. If you're interested in any of that stuff, give this guy a listen. He's really fantastic. The Great Courses has a special offer for our listeners. Order Mysteries of Modern Physics, Time, and get 80% off the regular price. To get the special offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake, except this week, we have a special edition. This is actually our third installment, right, Joshi, of Jewby or Fiction. Yes, there we go. It's a big hit, and I'm glad to be back. Thank you guys for letting me back on. Welcome back, Joshi. Anytime, Joshi. Awesome, awesome. Well, this week I decided to do the Sabbath edition. Now, uh, we've touched about the silly things that Orthodox Jews do. And when I say Jews, I mean Orthodox Jews. Please don't send me emails and stuff saying that I'm only referring to a specific section of Jews. Of course, obviously, that's who I'm talking about. Uh, the reason I'm picking the Sabbath edition is because Orthodox Jews will often tell you um, that there is good reasons for a lot of the things they do. Now, kosher and other things, they give you such silly answers and such stupid responses that you can't really argue back. You know, certain foods are bad for your soul. How can you argue with that? But the Sabbath stuff and, you know, the fact that they demean women and other things, they try to have real world, world responses for them. And, uh, you know, the whole, the fact that you can't touch your wife, you know, half of her life after she has her period, they say, you know what, if you withdraw from sex, you know, half of your life and you can't touch your wife, you're going to appreciate her so much more the times that you do. And it's so funny that all religions always pick on the women to make these points. I mean, how come they didn't ever tell, you know, the wife to not cook for her husband every other day because he's going to appreciate the food so much more the times that he has it. It's always the poor women that take it so hard, you know, when they want to make points. And the Sabbath is another one of those where they say, you know what, you know, for the family to sit together and not be allowed to do anything but sit around and talk and chill out. In theory, it sounds like they have a good excuse and it sounds like a good thing, you know, to rest on the Sabbath. But when you adhere to the minutiae and the little things that they do, it actually goes against the point because, you know, 2,000 years ago, when it said do not create, make a light, you know, on the Sabbath, it made sense because, you know, 
know, to make a light, a fire, required taking two sticks, and it was burdensome, you know, and it was work. But nowadays, when you could just flip on a switch, and instead of that, when you're an Orthodox Jew and the, and the fuse blows in your house, and you have to stand on the side of the road waiting for a non-Jew to come along so you can lure them into your house to turn the lights on, that doesn't seem like it's something to make your family chill out and relax and make the Sabbath more enjoyable. So I picked the Sabbath edition, and I'm going to be telling you guys four things about the Sabbath. One of them is not true. Are we ready? Yes. Yeah. Ready, Jack. Wow, yes. Here we go. So work is prohibited on the Sabbath, and as such, number one, sex is not allowed during the Sabbath. Well, while modern Orthodox Jews allow some physical touching and, you know, you can be affectionate with your wife, of course, the times of the month when you're allowed to, the most Orthodox Jews will not allow that at all because that might lead to penetration, which, of course, is considered work, and that is not allowed on the Sabbath. <laughs> That's considered work. Sweet yep. work. They're not doing I it think, right. I think all religions uh, try to take the fun out of it. Anyways, number two. Tearing toilet paper is not allowed on the Sabbath. Even if the roll is perforated, detaching squares is considered work and you are not allowed to do it on the Sabbath. The third one, killing lice is permitted on the Sabbath, although killing any animal would clearly be considered work and it would be a big violation and prohibit on the Sabbath, the Talmud points out that lice don't have parents, are inanimate objects that are that are created from dust and dirt and other things, and therefore they're not real animals and they can be disposed of as desired. And the fourth one is, that Talmud always got it right, the fourth one is, while all religious Jews do not open a refrigerator that has a light bulb in it, because obviously when you open it, the light, the light will go on and that's work, and they all unscrewed before the Sabbath. Some religious Jews, many of them actually, go a step further. And even if you unscrew the light bulb before that, they add restrictions and they do not allow you to open the refrigerator door at other times. So, these are the four things about the Sabbath. One of them is fiction. Jay, I don't want you to listen to anyone else. I want you to go first. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um. Well, first off, the wow. Okay, so let's see here. So, sex not allowed during the Sabbath because they consider it. They consider sex work. Um, I mean, Jesus, well, what else point. can you do when you can't do anything else? Jesus has there's no, there's no Jesus, day. Jay. <laughs> well, he was Jewish. Joshy, what else can you do when you can't do anything else? I mean, you figure get, getting laid is pretty much like that. Should be the gimme. That should be like, well, you can't, you know, open the refrigerator and. You know, you can't do anything else, really. You can't even put your freaking, you know, buckle your pants or whatever. But you can get laid. I don't know. That one that one is rubbing me the wrong way. Ah. Anyway, let's go move oh. on here. Um, <laughs> the toilet paper one, it can't be true because you have to go to the bathroom. You absolutely have to. I mean, what, are you going to wipe your ass with a, with a shank of leather? Like, what the hell? No. No one help him um, here. Leather comes in shanks? Whatever. You know what I mean. <laughs> Uh, I couldn't think of a, what a swath. What do you call it? What would you call a little thing of leather? Piece. Uh, piece. Um. Yeah. A piece of leather. Thank you, Rebecca. You're awesome. Slab. Um, all right. So I so said you can kill lice on the Sabbath. It's permitted because they're not considered considered animals, I guess. Okay. That's, that's kind of weird, but that seems, you know, like that's one of those other things. You're bored. You're sitting around. You can't really do anything. You should be able to pick lice off yourself. <laughs> so that makes sense. 
And the, the last one here about the refrigerator, I mean, opening the freaking refrigerator. Yeah, I get the idea that the initiating the electrical current to the light bulb is a no-no, just like turning on and off any other electrical devices. But now Josh is saying that these other guys uh, will will say things like, well, no, you can't, you can't do it because um, they don't want you to open a refrigerator for whatever. They make it harder to open it, making it more work. So that that I guess that makes sense too. I could see that. I I fully believe that you are allowed to have sex on the Sabbath. So I'm going to say that one is the fiction. Evan, you want to have some Jewy opinion here? Sure, sure. Um, I like this segment or uh, this this annual event we do because it, it reminds me of uh, just how tortured I wasn't as a child growing up in a reform Jewish household. So thank, thank you, Josh. You. I, I appreciate uh, when you do these for us. The first one is sex is not allowed during the Sabbath. All right. So is sex work? I guess that's what it comes down to. Uh, you could take the position it is work. You could take the position it's not work and just, you know, pleasure. Um, you could go either way on this one. I think this one's really uh, 50-50 as far as I'm concerned. Um, the tearing of the toilet paper not allowed. You could, I, I, I think you have a stronger case there that that would be, you know, although it's minuscule, uh, technically some uh, exertion is involved and therefore you'd say that that one would be work. So uh, by comparing sex versus tearing toilet paper, I think tearing toilet paper is more likely to be work, which brings us on to the third one, killing lice on the Sabbath. Okay. Um, so yeah, killing something, I suppose, again, in some context is considered, uh, work. So are you allowed to do this? But it's because lives don't have parents and are created from dust and not real animals. Uh, they make that provision for lice. Uh, are there other similar little critters that, uh, you can't, you know, that, that are also exempt from that? I don't know about this one. Maybe, maybe it's not just lice. Uh, not opening the refrigerator that has a light bulb in it. So this one goes to like an extra level of restriction. So this, this of, you know, maybe between this one and the sex one is, you know, this, this one really, uh, takes it to another level, I think. So therefore, I think it's going to be between the refrigerator one and the sex one. Uh, I'll put my nickel down since we got to get a move on. I'm going to go with Jay. I'll say the sex not allowed during Sabbath. That one's going to wind up being the fiction. Nice. Rebecca, you want to chime in here? Yeah, for me, it's between the sex and the lice. How many times do I say that in a day? At least, (laughs) at least once. Uh, yeah, you can tear toilet paper the day before. Why not? Uh, refrigerator with a light bulb in it. Yeah, opening the fridge is hard work. I know every day, like, I just wish food would appear in front of me instead of me having to get up and go to the fridge. So, uh, the reason why I'm, I'm actually leaning towards the lice one because you're saying that the Talmud says that lice don't have parents and are created from dust. But I don't, I don't know if that's true. Um, I know that in the, I just did a YouTube video about the, the plagues of Egypt. I know that one of the plagues was lice and, uh, the God made the lice from dust, uh, in order to plague the Egyptians. But in my reading, that was like God did a magic thing. He made the dust turn into lice. Not like, oh, this is a regular thing and this is how lice are created. So, and even if lice don't have parents, 
killing them would still be work. Like, so, and I know that applying logic to this is probably the wrong thing. So I'm just going to go with the lice <laughs> one just to spread out the vote a little bit. Lice is the fix. Excellent. There we go, Bobby. Okay, I'm kind of, uh, I'm definitely leaning towards uh, Rebecca's logic, so-called logic on, on this. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 sex one. I mean, any any restrictions on sex and intercourse, I would not doubt. I'm just there's so much craziness there. Um, nothing that doesn't surprise me. T- tearing the paper I, again. I, I was going to say what Rebecca said. Just tear it the day before, or just grab tissues. I mean, there's a, there's a way around that. So uh, yeah, I'll say the lice is fiction as well. Excellent, Steve. We got a 50-50 here. You're going to go on your own or are you going to decide uh, who's got the majority here? Well, I'm going to give you the answer that I was thinking of before I heard everyone else's logic. But of course, none of these make sense, but that's the point, I guess, that they don't make sense. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out where which one is more illogical than the others. Uh, the, the whole sex thing, uh, they do call sex getting busy. So I guess that. <laughs> well, I don't think work. they call it getting busy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't think that's thing. Yiddish. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you could, you could use pre-torn toilet paper, but isn't wiping your ass work? Right? I mean, that's, that's serious work. I mean, that's excavation sometimes. It's, I mean, Jesus oh, Christ. Well, yeah. You could go oh, to the point that breathing God. is work. I mean, you know, how, how far that are you going to go? That was way too much information. <laughs> Thank you. And then I, I had the same thought though. The lice one didn't make sense because it, let's say it's dust. So cleaning up dust, that's work, right? That's cleaning. That's still work. That's an, that kind of makes the, le- I, I believe the hole they're made from dust thing, but that not that, how does that, make it not work so i couldn't make sense of that one i'm gonna have to agree that the lice makes the yeah, least baby. amount of nonsense and so that's i'm gonna say that's the fiction all righty so uh let's take these apart let's start with the last one um all jews do not open uh refrigerator doors that have lights in it of course you can't turn on a light but what you guys don't realize is that not only could you not turn on a light you can't start a car engine you can't turn on any motor or anything so when I used to go to my grandfather's house, who was a very religious Orthodox Jew, he would not allow us to open the refrigerator, even when we screwed out, when we unscrewed the light bulb, because when you open the refrigerator, it affects the temperature inside, and by affecting the temperature, it causes the the motor to go on faster because there's an internal motor that decides, I guess, when it hits a certain point, and by opening it, you make it warmer inside. So the only time he would allow us to open the refrigerator was when the motor was on so we'd sit around dying to have a drink and we'd have to wait for the motor to go on and quick 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 open it quickly but then i remember asking him i i don't get it it still affects the temperature inside even when the motor is going well nothing freaking makes sense but the bottom line is yeah my grandfather would also um not allow us to open the refrigerator door so that is true let's go to the second one now so we'll leave you you guys um safe and the second one is true as well tearing toilet paper is not allowed and nowadays when it's cheap you can go to 99 cent store and get a you know a box of of toilet paper that's not attached it's easy but back in the day when i was young i'm aging myself a little bit now box of kleenex was expensive to get and our parents would make us all sit a half hour before the sabbath and we have to sit and perforate piece after piece after piece so that we'd all be able to wipe our asses 
uh, during the Sabbath. I remember in yeshiva when we forgot to do it and stuff, like me and, you know, most of my friends were like, you know what, screw this, you know, we just, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to sit there and just take a dump and not wipe myself. So I would cut it. But there were some religious kids that, uh, wouldn't tear it. And, uh, I don't want to get into too many details, but there was a roll of toilet paper with a lot of stuff on it because they refused to tear uh, pieces of it off. Uh, and, sheesh. T- till today, I wonder if they actually removed the roll or they like stood up and backed up into it and just, okay, whatever. Either way, we're left with one and three and let's go to the lice one. Uh-oh. And oh, that boy. one, yeah, you were right with that, oh boy. And that one is Jewy. Uh, wow. Now, oh. this is, this right. is one of the shameful things about orthodoxy. And which is why I picked it is because, you know, it makes sense that when the t- Talmud was written, you know, I-, I believe microscopes weren't invented yet. And, you know, lice eggs are too small for the human eye to see, I believe, Steve, correct? And You can um, see the little it, nits if you look really close, but you can't see that they're eggs. Okay, right. So it, it makes sense that people back there, I believe most people in the world believed that there were certain insects that were small that were, you know, born without parents. Now we know there's no such a thing. So it makes sense that the Talmud got it wrong. The fact that they got it wrong and why you're allowed to kill things that don't have parents is a whole other question which you guys raised. But again, logic, like Rebecca said, doesn't make sense here. But the shameful thing about orthodoxy is they cannot ever admit that the rabbis of past years, uh, you know, were infallible or fallible. Yeah, that's the right word. They cannot admit that because then it all starts to crumble. So even today, they refuse to overturn it. And it's you could see them scrambling and trying to explain why today you can still kill the lice on the Sabbath, which should be prohibited and should be really, really bad, which gets us to sex and This is not only fiction, but it is the opposite of the truth. Friday night is considered mitzvah night, which means commandment night, which means Jews are commanded to have sex. It's it's like the special night. It's why the streets of Brooklyn are empty. Josh, hang on. I want to get Jennifer in here to hear this. All right. Hang on. (laughs) Because yeah, <laughs> nothing's more fun than sex that has been commanded. <laughs> yeah, imagine Do the it. power you had when you were like a teenager. We have to have sex. <laughs> Anyways, but before I go, I have three quick shout outs. Shout out number one is to Alex. Alex is uh, one of the greatest human beings that I've ever met in my life. Great guy. He was a skeptic in Arizona that had chronic Lyme's disease, was bedridden for several years. And the only thing that kept him going, he had a handful of friends to visit him, was SGU. He listened to SGU day in and day out. And Alex is the reason that I have work today. I was going for a gig that I was underqualified, of course, to get. And he put his neck out because when he saw the name Josh, he was on a short list of people considered for the job. He asked the boss, he said, is that Joshy Burke? And he said, yeah. And he goes, you hire him or I quit. <laughs> and Alex put his, oh. no, that's a true story. Bob can can um, ascertain this. So Alex is a person that feels like he knows every one of you guys personally. You guys are going to see him at Nexus. He moved to New York after he was able to get out of bed, and it feels well. A great guy. He's involved heavily in the New York City skepticism. See now, great friends with the Feldmans and stuff. And, uh, you know, if you guys give a big shout-out to Alex, it would mean a lot to him and a lot to me. Hey, Alex. Alex. You're the best, buddy. Alex. Nexus, man. 
Yeah. Um, then the next thing is you guys always discuss, you know, skepticism overseas, Australia, India, so on and so forth. I need to give a, a shout out to, there's an Israeli podcast that modeled themselves after you called Safek Savir, which means reasonable doubt. They have been doing a wonderful job going after homeopathy and other pseudosciences in Israel. They've gotten one of the biggest, uh, not one of the biggest, the biggest pharmaceutical chain in Israel to, to be forced to put, um, um, on the side of the boxes words that to the essence say that this only works if it's taken in addition to real medicine which pretty much says this is bullshit mm-hmm. and they're awesome. they're great so yes the fix of here to Leora, Iran, Yaron and Barak great job Kolakavod so that's the second one and the third one is of course to the people coming to Nexus I have to tell you something two years ago I was in the green room with PZ Myers and uh, Neil deGrasse and Randy. And I remember thinking to myself, if this was a pseudoscience conference, not a science conference, and they brought out their big hitters like, you know, uh, Dr. Oz or some other asshole like Deepak or something, what would they be charging for that? $2,000, $3,000 for a weekend? Nexus is so freaking cheap. If you're within a 200-mile driving range of Nexus and you don't go, there's really, really something wrong with you. And I'm not, ju- I'm not just kissing ass from you guys or other people that put the event together. It would, be, it's just criminal for someone that's into science and skepticism to not attend something like Nexus. And I felt that I had to get that out there. All right. Thanks, Josh. Right. Thanks, Josh. We, we do price it as cheaply as we can to get as many people ridiculously, as we can there, ridiculously like cheap. So I appreciate you recognizing that it is, it is done deliberately. Kudos to you guys. And remember, I'm really shy. So if you show up to Nexus, say hi to me. I'm really not the type, you know, to approach you first. <laughs> so shy. So shy. Jay, how about a quote? I usually try to find a quote from an interview. And I found a great quote by James Marster. So I'm going to do it. We're going to send yet another quote by him during this episode. But I really this, think this one is really cool. My personal philosophy would be don't whine, don't let opportunities pass you by, be willing to work hard, and remember that you don't know as much as you think you do, ever. James Marsters! Yeah, I saw that one too. I thought that was a really good quote. Mm-hmm. What a great guy. All right. Well, Joshy, thanks for joining us. Hope you're feeling better. Hope you feel better by Nexus. Yes, I definitely will. I'm going to be taking off work for it, and I will be at all the events at the Drinking Skeptically, I will be annoying you guys at the live recording and stuff, and I am so looking forward to it. Only eight days away. Yeah. Wow. And thanks you all for joining me again this week. Thank, Thank you, Steve. You're welcome, thanks, Steve. Steve. Good show. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.